welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories in science and politics. Our lead story today concerns the Iranian nuclear bomb project. After years of fits and starts, fits and starts, now it seems as if we're in the final chapter. Will Iran get the atomic bomb? Many analysts believe that it's only now a few weeks, a few weeks to a few months before Iran has enough weapons-grade uranium to make an atomic bomb. Things are coming to a head. And at the same time, the hardline Iranian government has stated that it's willing to perhaps negotiate the bomb in exchange for a reduction or elimination of the economic sanctions on the economy. So, President Biden has a tremendous choice that he's going to have to make just within the next few weeks. What to do about the uranium bomb program now that it's only a few weeks to a few months away from being able to assemble a nuclear bomb. And then, on another front, China tested a hypersonic weapon that is causing a tremendous amount of stir within military circles. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff made a solemn statement stating that this could be a Sputnik moment. What is a Sputnik moment? Back in 1957, the Russians launched the first artificial satellite into orbit, Sputnik, and caused the military and the scientific establishment of the United States to have a nervous breakdown. I mean, all of a sudden, the Soviets were leaping ahead of the United States in terms of mastery of outer space. And the same question is now being asked by the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Is this another Sputnik moment or not? Well, we'll have to wait and see. And then on the medical front, let me say something about a breakthrough that's causing a certain amount of controversy. There are thousands of individuals that are waiting for a kidney transplant. Without a kidney transplant, you could die. In fact, 43,000 people die every year in the United States because they lack a kidney donor. So wouldn't it be great if we could save 63,000 lives by harvesting the kidney from an animal like a pig? Well, at NYU, a breakthrough was scored. They were able to modify the genetics of the pig, extract out the kidney, and then use it to filter out the waste products from a cadaver human body. Well, this is an incredible breakthrough because it's the first time it's ever been done. And there are thousands of people waiting desperately in line to get a kidney transplant, only to find out that there's none available and they will die as a consequence. But it also raises ethical questions. How far will this go? Are we going to simply start to harvest animal after animal for heart and lungs and kidneys and what have you? Or is there a line that has to be drawn at some point? Well, we'll say a few things about that on exploration. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top science stories of the past week. 
You know, the Iranian nuclear bomb program has been going in fits and starts, fits and starts for decades, with the United States putting sanctions on the Iranian economy, with the Iranians uh, actually lying to inspectors about the state of his nuclear program, and of course, President Trump, like a bull in a china shop, rearranged the whole chess game. So let's try to back up a bit. Under President Barack Obama, a treaty was signed with the United States, the Europeans, and the Iranians. It seemed as if it was a breakthrough in the sense that the Iranians would slow down their nuclear program, and in exchange, of course, sanctions would be lifted. But some people, some people said there was a flaw, a flaw in that treaty. The critics of that treaty said that after 15 or so years, the Iranian government would not face any more restrictions on its nuclear program. In other words, after 15 years, de facto, it would become a nuclear power. Well, some European governments said, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, after all, there are a lot of European nuclear powers. But on the other hand, Israel said, well, over our dead body, will the Iranians get an atomic bomb? And so the Iranians... Well, do they really oppose an existential threat to Israel? The Israelis think so. And so the Israelis have tried to sabotage, sabotage the Iranian nuclear program. Well, that's the way it was under President Barack Obama. It seemed to be stable, at least temporarily. But then Trump comes in and says, well, look, we don't want this 15-year grace period. And after that, Iran becomes a nuclear power. President Trump pulled out of the nuclear agreement impose stringent sanctions on the economy. And basically, the goal was to either have the Iranians completely abandon the nuclear program or perhaps destabilize economically the regime so the people overthrow that government. Well, after Trump left office, things are not going back to normal. The Iranians, during the Trump years, said, well, if Trump is going to throw out the nuclear agreement, we are going to enrich uranium. Now, let me explain. There are two kinds of uranium involved in a nuclear bomb. U-238, which is not suitable for a bomb, but U-235, which is. Most naturally occurring uranium is U-238, the isotope that does not undergo the fission process. Therefore, you have to enrich it. You have to enrich it beyond the 3% enrichment level, which is used in commercial nuclear plants, which is too low to detonate a nuclear bomb. Once you get it up to 90% enrichment, that is 90% U-235 and 10% U-238, that is bomb-grade uranium. So where are the Iranians now? The Iranians said, well, since Trump threw out the agreement, they're free to enrich as much as they want. And they're up to 60% now, which means that they are within striking distance, perhaps only a few weeks, maybe a few months, before they have enough for an atomic bomb. Now, that doesn't mean they have a usable nuclear arsenal. It does mean that they might be able to detonate an atomic bomb within a few months. That alone is enough to cause concern. However, once you assemble a bomb, and detonate it, you have to deliver it. That means you have to miniaturize it. You have to fit it in the nose cone of a missile. 
So in other words, the Iranians might be able to detonate an atomic bomb within a few uh, weeks to a few months, assuming everything goes well for them, but to have it usable in warfare, where you have a, a push-button system where you push a button and a rocket fires an atomic bomb on your enemy, they are perhaps years away from that capability. So what are the options facing the Europeans, the United States, Israel, and Iran? Well, each of them see the situation slightly differently, okay? First of all, the Israelis take the position over our dead body, will Iran get a nuclear weapon, treaty or no treaty? Therefore, the Israelis have tried to sabotage the Iranian nuclear program, assassinate key scientists working on the program, and try to use computer viruses, anything at its disposal to try to slow down the Iranian nuclear program. So if Iran gets enough nuclear material, enriched material to build an atomic bomb, at that point, well, at that point, they may preempt. That is, they may attack Iran. And then the question is, what does the United States do if the Israelis attack the Iranian nuclear program at that point? One option is that Iran can simply seal off the Straits of Hormuz. Uh, much of the world's oil goes through that, and that's why the Europeans do not want it to escalate to that point, because Europe would be starved for oil. The United States, of course, has a certain amount of stockpiled uh, reserves, but uh, Europe does not. And so the Europeans will yell uncle if it comes to a severing of the oil pipeline from the Middle East into Europe. So in other words, what are the options? The options for the Israelis is, they consider this an existential threat, they will probably accelerate sabotage, accelerate assassinations, and if that fails, they may preempt. In other words, they will try to drag the United States into a full-blown conflict with Iran, and Iran, in turn, will unleash its revolutionary guards around the world for sabotage and terrorism, and they could cut off the Straits of Hormuz, where a lot of the world's oil goes. So, what are the options now facing Biden? Well, the options facing President Biden are not very not very clear at all. On one hand, he realizes that the Israelis may preempt, in which case the United States will have to decide whether or not to move in militarily to protect Israel. Or President Biden can simply do nothing. That's right, do nothing and allow Iran to get the atomic bomb, or at least have the ability on a moment's notice to assemble an atomic bomb and try somehow to put the treaty back into play. The option facing President Biden could be, well, do nothing. And of course, many times, presidents of the United States have done nothing and hoped that a crisis would blow away. First of all, the Iranians have said that they're willing to negotiate on the condition that the economic sanctions are removed. The government of Iran is hurting, hurting badly because of the economic sanctions. People are suffering, and the government knows that this causes instability. And so they said, first of all, they are willing, willing to negotiate, but 
The negotiation has to remove the sanctions. And, well, what is Biden going to do with that? The most logical alternative would be for Biden to take that offer seriously. However, as I mentioned, if it means that if it means that the Iranians are just one screw turn away from assembling an atomic bomb, then the wild card is Israel. At that point, what's going to happen? Nobody knows. Well, stay tuned when we see what happens in the next few weeks to next few months when the Iranians have the capability of assembling a nuclear bomb, but not yet the capability of delivering it with a missile. Also, China is in the news. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said it's like a Sputnik moment, the time when the Chinese launched its version of a hypersonic weapon. Back in 1957, the, the Soviets caught the world off guard by sending Sputnik into orbit around the planet Earth. At that point, the military of this country had a nervous breakdown. They had visions that perhaps the Russians could put a hydrogen bomb in orbit around the Earth and have it land on Washington, D.C. And so the military was having a nervous breakdown. The educational establishment of this country was having a nervous breakdown as well, realizing that, well, Johnny can't read, but Ivan can. That was the headline of Life magazine, the fact that our educational system is woefully behind the scientific rigor of the Soviets. So that was the Sputnik moment, a moment of soul-searching, a moment when the United States educational establishment and military establishment had a nervous breakdown. Well, let's put things into perspective. Yes, the Chinese tested a hypersonic weapon. Yes, the United States underestimated the ability of the Chinese to field such a weapon, but it's not the end of the world. So let me try to explain. First of all, under President Ronald Reagan, the policy of the United States became more and more away from mutual assured destruction, that is a stalemate between the Soviet Union and the United States, and more and more into a breakout. That is, the United States would create a Star Wars shield around its missile bases and cities, neutralizing the Soviet arsenal. Well, it turned out to be a lot harder than expected. Many scientists in this country have stated that if it comes to war and the United States depends upon a Star Wars system, the Russians have so many thousands of strategic nuclear weapons, they can pierce, they can penetrate our nuclear shield. Yes, the shield will knock down some of their missiles, but it only takes a handful only takes a handful of Soviet hydrogen warheads to penetrate a Star Wars shield to neutralize the United States as a political and economic entity. And so most military planners do not think that the Star Wars program is a bulletproof shield. On the other hand, what does Russia think about this? The Russian attitude is not to build its own Star Wars system that would bankrupt the economy. It's very expensive trying to shoot down a bullet with another bullet. Instead, the Russian policy is to maneuver its weapons so that they can evade a Star Wars shield. 
You see, the Star Wars shield logs onto an ICBM, calculates its future trajectory using Newton's laws of motion, and then fires an anti-missile to shoot down the Soviet missile. That depends on the ability of computers within just a few minutes to lock onto a target, calculate its future trajectory, and then intercept that weapon. The weapon, in turn, is traveling at thousands of miles per hour. And a lot of American physicists shake their heads and say that, nope, it's not bulletproof. However, the Soviet policy is to maneuver its weapons and make them hypersonic, that is, faster than the speed of sound, between Mach 5 and Mach 20, up to 20 times the speed of sound, so that a Star Wars shield of the United States would be rendered useless. So the Star Wars program of the United States is not equipped, not equipped to shoot down missiles that can maneuver zigzag in space. And as a consequence, perhaps a few of them will penetrate the Star Wars shield. Well, it's also known that the Chinese are working on this program too. But how advanced is their Chinese program? Well, that's where the shock came in. It turns out that the missile tests by the Chinese were more sophisticated than we previously thought. Now, of course, the United States had its finger in the pot, but two years ago, the United States pretty much abandoned hypersonic weapons. First of all, because we don't really use them to uh, penetrate a Russian Star Wars shield, because Russia doesn't have one, so therefore we don't really need hypersonic weapons. But two, two years ago, the United States military gave up. Because you see, when a bomb maneuvers as it enters the atmosphere at about 18,000 miles per hour, it can veer off course. It's very easy for a zigzagging, maneuvering warhead to spiral out of control and then crash. That's what happened two years ago. So the military pretty much said, nah, we don't really need it because uh, we're not going to penetrate a Soviet Star Wars shield. And it's too unstable. Well, then the Russians caught everyone off guard last year when Vladimir Putin announced that it had perfected its version of a hypersonic weapon capable of going between Mach 5 and Mach 20, 20 times the speed of sound. And now, just last week, and now the Chinese have made a breakthrough in developing their hypersonic weapon. And the United States, well, some people say the United States is falling behind. The Russians are ahead of us in this respect. Now, is this another scandal like the missile gap of the 1960s that propelled John Kennedy into the presidency? Probably not. You see, the ICBM, the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, now that was a game changer. That affected the balance of power because it introduced the concept of a push-button war. Before the ICBM, the Soviets and the United States had bombers. But bombers take time, time to reach their target, many, many hours. And so a nuclear war was thought to be over within a matter of a few days. But with the ICBM capable of hitting Russia within, let's say, half an hour, it meant that a push-button war takes precedence over all previous military strategies. This means that it was a game-changer. A push-button war meant that an adversary 
could preempt your missiles, destroy your arsenal before you can muster retaliation because everything is done by the second, by the minute. That was a game changer. Now, the hypersonic weapons are not a game changer. They're basically a way to go around a Star Wars shield that only the United States has. And so that is a matter of concern. But even before hypersonic weapons were being talked about, most military analysts and scientists in this country shook their heads and said, nope, the Star Wars shield that we have today is not effective against a conventional ICBM attack. A conventional ICBM with thousands of warheads coming at you, even if they don't maneuver, who can reliably shoot down thousands of warheads and not have a single one escape and hit Washington, D.C. or New York City? That's why perhaps the best solution to this problem is a treaty. We have treaties for intermediate, for short range, for intercontinental ballistic missiles. Why not a treaty regulating hypersonic weapons? Because, of course, that makes the push button a little bit faster. It's not a game changer, but it is of concern because it reduces the time it takes for computers to analyze whether or not it's a bird that's attacking you or whether it's a fleet of missiles with hydrogen warheads on them attacking you. And so that's the problem in a push-button war is use it or lose it. In other words, if you wait too long, your arsenal gets wiped out by the enemy's attack. So you have to fire first. It puts an enormous amount of pressure on you to fire first. Is that a bird that's coming at you? Are you willing to gamble the fate of humanity, assuming that it's only a bird? Maybe it's an ICBM coming at you. Well, that's the problem with a push-button war. And hypersonic weapons are dangerous because they, well, they're not a game-changer, but as I mentioned, they take us closer and closer to a push-button war. Well, let's say a few things about the medical front. In the United States, there are 750,000 Americans who suffer from end-stage renal disease, almost a million, of which 43,000 die every year for lack of a kidney donor. That's more than die in car accidents or HIV or homicide. An enormous number of people in this country die because their kidneys give out and they don't have a kidney donor in line to give them this life-saving organ. So what are we going to do about it? Well, of course, Scientists and doctors have asked the public to donate kidneys, but that's only a tiny fraction of the 63,000 people that need a kidney transplant. So wouldn't it be great if we can somehow harvest the kidneys of pigs? Well, first of all, let's put that into perspective. Americans eat 131 million pigs in 2020 alone, that's 131 million. And we're only talking about harvesting the kidneys of 63,000 um, pigs. So that's only a tiny fraction of the number of pigs they get eaten. In fact, worldwide, it's even worse. 
Worldwide, 5 to 10 million people suffer from kidney failure and require dialysis. So what are scientists doing? On one hand, you can make artificial kidneys. However, they're very difficult. Out of plastic, it is possible to make skin, bone, heart valves, uh, uh, heart valves and bladders and windpipes. Uh, that can be done using plastic molds and then seeding them, seeding them with cells from the from the heart valves and bladders, so there's no rejection mechanism. That's today. We can already do that. But the kidney is an extremely complex organ because it's a filtering device. No one has been able to make an object as sophisticated as a kidney out of plastic. The advantage there, of course, is that you can seed it with your own cells so there's no rejection mechanism. If you use pigs, well, there's a rejection mechanism involved. The human body attacks the pig flesh and renders the, renders the organ useless. Well, that's where this breakthrough comes in, coming from NYU. It turns out that they took the kidney of a pig, treated it genetically so that it reduced its ability to reject human tissue, connected it to a cadaver, and lo and behold, it worked. At least it worked during the time that they cooked it up. The kidney functioned. It filtered out the waste products like urine from the blood, and it seemed to be a potential life-saving uh, operation. Remember, this is not dialysis. We're talking a cure because of the fact that the organ is not going to be rejected. Now, of course, this is just the first. Many more trials have to be done because of the fact that we have to see whether it works for not just a few hours, but a few years inside the human body. Maybe eventually the human body will learn to reject the, the pig organ. But right now, it seems to work. But then that raises a lot of ethical questions. Where do you draw the line? After all, people are saying that maybe we can harvest one day hearts and lungs from animals and perhaps use this to save, again, more human lives. But then the question is, where does it stop? Because, of course, these animals feel pain. These animals are mammals with a nervous system. And so that's something to, to worry about, too, when we think about the ethics of harvesting these organs. So remember, human transplants, uh, there's simply not enough donors for kidneys, and plastic kidneys are not developed enough in order to insert them into the human body. The best shot we have now is to harvest pig organs by modifying them so that they don't reject the organ that is a life-saving device. Well, it's something to think about because of the fact that it's coming very fast. There are simply so many people, so many people literally dying to get a kidney that there's going to be enormous pressure to open the floodgates for this very new, uh, very new treatment.
Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of Exploration. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, and if you want to know more about Exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. We have 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. The latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. And it's about, well, what I do for a living. That's what I work on in the physics department. Stay tuned now for the second half of exploration when we delve into the world of biotechnology with one of its leaders, Dr. Robert Lanza. Stay tuned. To exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. In the second half of exploration, we're going to bring on one of the leaders of biotechnology, Dr. Robert Lanza, and we're going to take a look at the progress that we've made in the last several decades. You know, when you look at the 20th century, many people say that the 20th century was a century of physics. We had not only the atomic bomb and the hydrogen bomb coming out of physics, but we also have the fact that radio, television, microwaves, rocketry, space travel, all of it comes from physics. And so some people say that the enormous breakthroughs of science come from physics in the 20th century. But in the 21st century, it's going to be the century of biology. In other words, physics gave us the ability to read the DNA molecule. And from that, we've been able to tinker with the DNA molecule and therefore tinker with life itself. And think of the consequences of that. For example, new drugs and new cancer therapies, immunotherapy, that is trying to extract immune cells from the human body culture them in the laboratory outside the human body, and then put them back in the human body in order to attack cancer. A whole new way of attacking cancer came out of biotechnology. Certain things, however, were slower than expected. Gene therapy, we once thought, would usher in a whole new line of drugs and therapies for incurable diseases. That has been slower than we thought. But gene editing went much faster than anyone expected. There's something called CRISPR technology, which uses the mechanisms that bacteria use to defend against viruses. That's right. Germs, bacteria, will actually use certain mechanisms to fight off viruses. And this is CRISPR technology, which allows you to re-edit, re-edit the genetics of other living cells and viruses. With CRISPR technology, there's been an explosion, an explosion of what we can do with gene editing. For example, think of what we can do with the coronavirus. In the old days, it took years, 
years of very hard work to come up with the usable vaccine. Now we can do it within a matter of a few months. So think of the breakthroughs that have come out of biotechnology. And now we're in a position to use biotechnology to create a human body shop. As organs wear out, we're able to create new organs. If the organs are simple, like skin, bone, cartilage, uh, heart valves, we can do it using a plastic mold and seeding it with cells from our own body. So there's no rejection mechanism. But for more complicated organs, like the liver, the lungs, the kidneys, you can't do that. You have to then harvest these organs from, well, cadavers or perhaps from animals. And that's where this new breakthrough took place at NYU. The fact that it's possible to change the genome of a pig. Using biotechnology, it's now possible to modify the genetics of a pig so that the kidneys of a pig will not be rejected by the human recipient. This is a breakthrough because, as I mentioned, there are tens of thousands of individuals who are begging, begging to get a kidney donor that never materializes. So what happens to them? They die. Very sad, given the fact that there are tens of millions of pigs that are consumed every year. And now, using biotechnology, it's possible to modify those pigs so that organs can be then put into a human being. Proof of principle was demonstrated just recently at NYU. Well, with us today in the second half of exploration is Robert Lanza, one of the pioneers in biotechnology. He, in fact, was able to extract usable cells from an animal that died and that animal came from an extinct, near-extinct lineage. And so he was able to, as the press pointed out, bring back the dead. That is, revive a species that was at the brink of extinction and bringing them back. And so some people even believe that one day we'll have a zoo, a zoo of formerly extinct animals, mammoths and maybe even saber-toothed tigers, Organisms that thrived during the last ice age but perished afterwards, maybe they can be brought back. So anyway, with us today in the second half of exploration is Dr. Robert Lanza, one of the leaders in this field of biotechnology. Well, as a young boy, I was rarely allowed outside the house. So I was on my own, and, and I went to the ponds to catch snapping turtles and would climb trees uh, to catch screech owls and flying squirrels. And so I'd go on these long trips trying to figure out the universe. And even at that age, I was in awe at the world. But unfortunately, my parents and none of my sisters had finished high school. So, so I, too, was placed in this slow class with the kids that used to throw the spitballs. So, so I came up with this <laughs> I, I know plan. that. <laughs> yeah. So, so I came up with this plan to prove myself. And, and, and actually, at that time, Watson and Crick had just cracked the genetic code uh, just a few years earlier. So I, I decided to carry out what amounts to genetic engineering. As a kid? Yes. I was actually a, a teenager. Uh, I was around 14. And I had actually seen a, a, a black squirrel, and so I wanted to, to see whether I could make it albino or vice versa. And so I went to my biology teacher, and, and uh, he told me that it was impossible, and, and everyone laughed at me. 
But I was determined to prove them wrong, so I went into my basement, and, and I figured out actually how to alter the genetic makeup of a white chicken to make them black by transferring genes from the pigmented chicken. And my mother thought I was just trying to hatch chicken eggs. So uh, I decided, you know, to, to really prove this, I really needed to work with someone who understood that stuff. So, you know, to me, the, the greatest place on the planet was Harvard Medical School. So I saved up my nickels and dimes and took the buses and trolleys into Boston. And it actually took me half a day to get there. I didn't even know where I was going. So I tried to, to, to go in through the front door, and, and the guard didn't let me. It was sort of like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, you know, when the palace god said, go away. But rather than leaving, I went around the back and I waited by the Dipsy dumpster and I saw this little short, bald guy walking up with khaki pants and a, and a bunch of keys. And I thought, oh, here's the janitor. So he opens the door and I just sort of slip in. And a little way down the corridor, he says, well, can I help you, sir? And I said, no, I'm looking for a Harvard doctor. Now, what I didn't know was that was Stephen Kufler, chairman of the neurobiology department. He had, had just been nominated for the Nobel Prize. Is that but, right? <laughs> yeah, so, so I thought he, you know, uh, that he was just the janitor and... And, and so I told him that I was friends with the janitor down the street from me and, and that I worked in the, in, in the cafeteria. And so he asked me why I was there, and, and I said I was trying to, you know, uh, alter the genetic uh, makeup of a white chicken. And, and then I, I went on, you know, explaining about DNA, thinking, you know, he doesn't have a clue. And then he, he actually said, well, I know someone that can help you. And he brought me upstairs, you know, past all the spaghetti wire and all to, to Josh Sains, who, who now runs actually the Brain Center at Harvard. And he was just a grad student at the time. So after talking with Josh all day, uh, they invited me back to repeat those experiments. And, and the work was ultimately published in Nature in, in 1974. And, and every now and then I would go back and the janitor would show up. And I was always so excited to see him. And it wasn't until later that I realized who he was. <laughs> So that, and, that was actually how I, I got into the hard science. And where did you get the equipment for your high school project uh, interfering with the genes of living organisms? Where did you get your equipment? Well, well, it was really very challenging. You know, you have to remember I was just a little boy, very short. I didn't look very old. And, you know, I'd be trying to get syringes, so I'd be at the hospitals trying to convince the doctors to, to give me syringes. And then I would go to another hospital and, and convince them and to give me penicillin. And, and there was actually a, a gentleman who actually worked at one of the state labs who had a centrifuge in his cellar. So I put these all together and, and managed over a period of time to, to figure out how to do it in a very crude way. So you created your own biotech laboratory in your basement? Yeah, right next to the kid? furnace. My mother actually had no idea I was doing it. <laughs> Amazing. You know, when I was a kid, I built an atom smasher in my garage. You're kidding. Yeah, I had to go to Westinghouse. <laughs> so you understand. <laughs> yeah, I went to Westinghouse to get uh, 400 oh, pounds of transformer steel and 22 miles of copper wire wow, to build uh, a 2.3 million electron volt Betatron in the garage. <laughs> and you, <laughs> as a kid, was out there meddling with the genes of living organisms. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it, it was a fun time. Okay. Well, moving on now. Let's talk about cloning. We've okay. heard so much about cloning in the media. Arnold Schwarzenegger even had a movie where he where he met his clone, and uh, the whole movie was based on criminal clones. Mm -hmm. Well, what is a clone, and how far are we in terms of being able to clone animals, uh, primates, and maybe even humans? Well, well, cloning is conceptually very simple. You, you basically take the cell from the animal you want to clone and, and put it next to an empty egg that ha has had all of its DNA removed. 
And then you send an electrical charge through the two cells, and and they fuse. So when the cells fuse, the DNA from the cell you want to clone is is dumped into the empty egg. And another approach is just to inject the DNA directly into the empty egg. Uh, The next step is is to use chemicals then to fool that egg into thinking it's been fertilized. And so then this cell starts to divide, and you end up with an embryo that can then be placed in a surrogate mother. And then if everything goes well, uh, you can end up with a genetically identical copy of the animal you want to clone. And of course, you know, we've cloned at this point uh, many dozens of species. We've cloned endangered species, uh, glow-in-the-dark mice, whole herds of cows. Uh, In fact, uh, you know, there have been many farm animals, goats, pigs, cows, and even pets such as cats and dogs. Now, we had a chance to interview uh, Ian Wilmot, uh, Mm -hmm. the Scottish scientist who actually cloned Dolly. Uh, Explain to us exactly what he did. Uh, What was Dolly and was Dolly premature age? There was some controversy about that. Well, yes, Ian Wilman was the first to actually clone uh, a mammal from an adult cell. And so he actually took a cell and, and, and went through the methodology I just described, and then that, that DNA was placed into an empty uh, egg from, from another sheep. And when Dolly was born, everyone thought, uh, because of the length of the telomeres, and these are the ends of the chromosomes that determine how many times a cell can divide, uh, we all thought that, that cloning basically, Dolly was basically an older sheep, you know, uh, you know, in, in disguise. And so what we actually did is published a paper in 2000 that actually showed actually that that wasn't the case, that you can actually start out with an old senescent cell that's, that's decrepit, and the cloning procedure actually restores that cell to a youthful state and allows it once again to start dividing into an entire organism. So it, it actually turns out in the end, uh, using not only just sheep, but also cows and mice, it's been shown repeatedly now that in fact if, uh, cloning is like a little time machine. You can actually uh, rejuvenate that DNA and actually end up with youthful cells. So in other words, you are literally uh, turning back the biological clock, resetting it back to zero when this clone is born. Absolutely. In fact, in some of the experiments we did, we actually were able to turn it back even more so that the cells actually had twice the lifespan that they normally should. Uh, so, again, the process is very irregular, so there's a possibility that, you know, that they, they may actually live shorter or longer, and, and a lot of that depends on many factors. So, in other words, the cloned animal, in some sense, may actually be an improved version of the original animal with longer telomeres? Well, certainly at the cellular level, we know that that is the case. Now, you know, obviously aging is very complex. There are other environmental factors that go into it. But certainly at the the cellular level, uh, we know that in some of these experiments, we actually have cells that that lived uh, quite extensively longer. Okay. Now, what kinds of animals have been cloned? I understand that uh, pets have been cloned, Mm -hmm. and I even went to uh, Dallas, Texas with a film crew from BBC Television where we went to a ranch where we saw clones of clones of clones, Mm -hmm. and uh, one series of animals, uh, we had like eight animal calves all lined up in a line. They were all identical twins. So what kinds of animals have been cloned? Well, uh, you know, the list is quite extensive, uh, you know, starting from mice, rats, and rabbits, uh, again, all of the various farm animals, goats, pigs, horses. In fact, uh, we created an entire herd of cows that actually was making human proteins in their milk uh, that were genetically modified. Uh, on top of that, of course, uh, you know, there are multiple different endangered species that have now been cloned. So in, in theory, virtually every mammal should uh, in the future be able to be cloned. 
Now, in the newspapers, every once in a while, some oddball announces that he's done the first human clone. However, as I understand, no primate has been successfully cloned. What's the status with regards to cloning primates and humans? Well, uh, as you point out, cloning primates, including humans, ha- has been problematic. You know, back in 2001, we were actually were the first group to clone uh, the first early stage of human embryos, and we were doing that for uh, generating cell stem cells, not for reproductive purposes. And, and, and even to this date, uh, the technique isn't perfected. Of course, there was the Wong scandal where for a while uh, we thought that someone had that technique worked out. Uh, in fact, just a few months ago, we published a scientific paper where we showed for the first time that human cloning can't actually successfully reprogram human cells back to a normal embryonic state, and, and we're still working on that. Now let's talk about your work, which is uh, nothing less than fantastic. Uh, first of all, with endangered animals, you've been able to essentially bring back to life, genetically speaking, organisms that have been dead for 25 years. Explain your work. Well, as you know, about 100 species go extinct every day, and, and those genes are lost from the planet forever. And, and so seeing that we're the ones that cause most of these extinctions, uh, you know, I, a while back I thought that, well, perhaps, you know, we had some responsibility to see if we could use some of our tools the best we can to, to reverse that. So back in 2000, I actually decided I would try to clone a gaur, which is an endangered ox-like creature, uh, from Asia, and it had been hunted almost to the verge of extinction. And, and I actually got some cells uh, that, from an animal that had died a few years earlier and, and tried to clone it using ordinary uh, domestic cow eggs. And, and many of my colleagues said, that, well, Bob, that's impossible. You, you can't get a clone. You can't clone one species using the eggs from another species. And it turned out we actually were able to generate a beautiful little baby Gower embryos. Uh, we actually sent them off to Iowa by FedEx Overnight Express, and they were implanted into ordinary farm cows. And, and nine months later, uh, we got a baby Gower, which we called Noah. It, it was born alive, walking around and, and bellowing. But then a couple days later, it died of dysentery. So everyone said, see, Bob, it doesn't work. So I went back to the San Diego Zoo and, and convinced them to, you know, let's give this a try again. So they said, well, you know, we, we actually have this, what we call stud 391, uh, that died back in 1980, a quarter of a century earlier. And he said, it would be great if you could uh, bring that animal, resurrect that animal, so we could reintroduce that valuable genetic material in, into our highly inbred uh, 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 group of animals that they had. So they sent me a vial of these cells, and we, we transferred them into some empty cow eggs, and they were sent off again to Iowa and, and, and implanted in some, some beef cattle that served as the surrogate moms. And, and we started with 16 pregnancies, and nine months later we were down to, to just two. And so there we were back in 2003. We were secretly gathered out in this farm out in the middle of nowhere, and we were watching this cow give birth by C-section. And, and I remember, you know, that, you know when the, they started the C-section, there was some splatting of blood, and, and the, the vet reached in and pulled out from the mother's belly, you know, these two small hooves. And when they started to massage it, you know, suddenly it, its eyes opened and its ears started to wiggle, and, and it let out this big... Uh, bellow and everyone applauded and, and the whole thing was so surreal here we were out in a farm in Iowa watching a beef cow give birth to this exotic endangered animal uh, that's normally born in the bamboo jungles of Southeast Asia it was really exciting now since then I guess many other people have followed in your footsteps right so I guess many endangered animals have been brought back 
Yes, that that is correct. And just recently uh, in, in South Korea, I understand that they, they cloned a, 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 an endangered wolf. Uh, you know, the, the hope is we've actually been in dialogue, uh, you know, with some folks in China about the giant panda. But also, too, work is now going on to clone cheetahs uh, and, and even the extinct Bucato mountain goat. Now, I understand that the competition is so fierce that in South Korea, one of their leading researchers was tempted to commit fraud and basically uh, faked all his papers claiming these fantastic results. Uh, Could you elaborate? Yeah, actually, back at the early part of this decade, we actually, you know, there was an article on the cover of Wired where we were on the verge. We actually had cloned a pretty advanced stage human embryo. And at the time, everyone thought it was eminent that we were going to be publishing, actually creating stem cells. And then just out of the blue, this group in South Korea, which no one had any knowledge of, published a paper in Science saying they had done it. So obviously, they this this individual thought he could do it, and, and his name was Wong. And unfortunately, it turned out many years later uh, that the whole thing had been fabricated. It was just a complete disaster. You know, it actually, you know, terminated most of the research we were doing. Uh, everyone had just assumed that this feat had been accomplished. Uh, you know, it was one of the biggest scandals in scientific history. It, it, was, it, was, it was just terrible. And in fact, some of my colleagues were wondering why he did it to disgrace the whole country, because at some point it would come out. However, the leading theory is that he probably thought that some group around the world was going to do it anyway. So why not simply beat them out by a few months to a few years, and then people will forget. People will overlook things and not go into the details and find out that he was a total fraud. No, absolutely. I I know he was convinced that in a few months we were going to publish a paper showing we could do it, and then everyone would say, see, it works. And and then he would have gone on and got his Nobel Prize. And in fact, the government gave him millions and millions of dollars and, and literally thousands of human eggs. And so I'm sure he was certain that he would be able to achieve it and and no one would ever know. In fact, he pulled into his, his, his group, you know, some of the top uh, cloning experts in the world, uh, you know, Shatton and even Ian Wilman in the end was, was working with him. So I'm sure he figured out with all of the brain power and resources that this would be pretty simple to do. And, and, and as you know, it's turned out to be a lot more difficult than anyone thought. Now, let's talk about something that is science fiction, okay. uh, bringing back extinct animals, including uh, the Neanderthal. Mm-hmm. Um, on this show, we've had people that are very interested in sequencing the genome of the Neanderthal, uh, our nearest uh, species, which died out tens of thousands of years ago in, in uh, Europe. And believe it or not, uh, they expect the full genome of the Neanderthal to be sequenced in the coming years. And there's talk about maybe bringing back the Neanderthals. Um, any comments? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, on many of these, you know, extinct species, including the Neanderthal and dinosaurs, that at some point in the future we may have that technology. Uh, I, I think, you know, even today I, I know, like, for instance, when you come to my house, I have this six-foot brontosaurus bone, bone that weighs 800 pounds, and, and, you know, it's from one of the largest dinosaurs that ever roamed the Earth. And the first thing everyone asks me is, is Bob, are you going to clone this? And I tell them, you can't clone from stone. You need living cells, or certainly the tissue. And, and as you mentioned, once we have the genome, we may be able to incorporate that into a living cell. Now, the thing to remember is that it's a little more complicated than that because there's two genomes in the cell, the mitochondrial genome, and that has to talk with the nuclear genome. So that presents a bit of a problem because even if you have the DNA 
for you know the for the, the species itself, what determines you or, or the Neanderthal or, or the dinosaur, you still need to figure out how to get that to be able to to interact with the the, the maternally uh, transferred uh, genetics. So uh, again, you know you know. You know, I, I always say that you're not going to be seeing dinosaurs in your backyard anytime soon. Uh, again, the, the Neanderthal tissue as well as the, the mammoth uh, that was unearthed a few years ago, uh, you, you have to realize that, that after years of freezing and thawing, that uh, there have been holes poked in the animal's DNA. And, and right now, molecular biologists don't know how to fill, fill in the gaps. And, and the same thing applies, I think, to the Tasmanian tiger, which died out in, in the 1930s uh, in, in Australia. But I think someday we are going to learn how to either sequence the entire genome or to repair the DNA. But again, that's going to be many years off. Now, with the woolly mammoth, we've actually had several people involved in that project on exploration. Mm-hmm. And they tell me that if you extract DNA from the the carcasses of these animals that died thousands and thousands of years ago in Siberia, you, get, you just get fragments, little pieces here and there all over the place, and it's pretty hard to make sense out of it. However, with computers, uh, with computers, we're going to get very good at putting pieces together and having the computer uh, put the jigsaw puzzle together. So what do you think? Maybe one day a computer using what is called bioinformatics, mm-hmm. you think they may be able to piece it together using, let's say, a blueprint of an elephant genome? I think absolutely. I think we have a lot of tricks in, in our toolbox, uh, something known as homologous recombination, which will allow us to go in and splice the genes right in precisely where we'd like them. And, and there are some newer techniques uh, evolving. And then, of course, you would require a very powerful computer, seeing that uh, I think someone once compared it to shredding up the New York uh, phone directory into little pieces and then having to reassemble it. But with computers, as you know, you know they're very powerful, and, and we're discovering new tricks. So I, I think sometime in the future, yes, that we definitely should be able to do this. Now, about two months ago, I did a book tour in London, and I went to Oxford, and I had dinner um, with uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, one of the leading uh, biologists in the world. And he's on record as stating that perhaps one day we'll be able to take the genome of a human, compare it to the genome of a chimpanzee, analyze the genes that are different, and then with a computer program, interpolate, interpolate between them in order to get the best approximation for the genome of the missing link, Australopithecus. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, he says this is an outrageous idea. Mm -hmm. He's very careful to say that. But it's an idea that can't be ruled out. Uh, You have any thoughts about such such an outrageous idea as one day bringing back not just a Neanderthal, but the missing link? I, I think uh, all that is possible in the future. There's no question about it. Once once we have the tools to manipulate the genetics, uh, you know, already today we know how to knock out genes, for instance, to increase the, the muscle mass of, of an animal to, to twice its, its, its original uh, amount. So I think we already have some of those tools, and, and, and uh, we're adding them very quickly. So, yes, I think it could be done, and, but as... Uh, you mentioned, I think there's this ethical concern that it will probably prevent it from occurring. I mean, even when we, you know, generated the first cloned embryo, even for medical purposes, I mean, it was a huge outcry. It's very, very controversial. So, yes, in theory, I think we, we will eventually have the scientific tools to, to do it. The question will be, should we? <laughs> and speaking about ethics and the dark side, maybe you saw the movie The Island. 
In that movie, it's a very dark plot. Uh, people find out, uh, much to their shock, that they are actually clones, clones of a, of a real person. They didn't realize that they were imposters. They, they always thought they were real humans. Mm -hmm. But they were cloned in order to harvest the organs of their body. In other words, they were raised to be killed mm -hmm. so that the organs of their body could be harvested and then given to a rich man who actually paid big bucks to have their body cloned. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, you can't clone memories. Uh, that's mm -hmm. not possible. But uh, do you think that is the way some people are going to go? Or do you think we'll simply grow organs separately from having to clone the entire body? Yeah, well, I, I think there's a consensus in the medical and scientific community that you would never allow any kind of a clone to go past the first uh, several days of, of cell division. So it would be smaller than, you know, the head of a pin. So I, I think what we would do is, is what we're doing now is, is you would create uh, embryonic stem cells or, or what we call now iPS cells for, for pluripotent stem cells. And, and those cells are immortal and they grow. And we can now turn those into virtually every cell type in the body. And through a new techniques that are developing in, in a field known as tissue engineering, we can reconstitute those into more complex tissues and structures. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. Our special guest today was Dr. Robert Lonza, a pioneer in biotechnology. And if you want to know more about exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org, and find out what all the excitement is about concerning science and its impact on society. Good day. <music>